Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I guess one end of the spectrum reading this book made me feel like these guys were potentially almost indigenous people, like the last of the indigenous people living off the land in the UK, you know, whether you agree with it or not. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 49 with Emma Crome. Emma is one of my closest friends and she's one of the director team at our film production company, Cold House. Emma and I have known each other for a long time now and a few years ago she began work on a film project about the state of nature in the UK. In the middle of the COVID-19 lockdown, we sat down to record this podcast, focusing on Emma's upbringing, her, her views on British wilderness, and her hump for Brian Tovey, the last English poacher. Emma has decided to release Brian's story as a short film, which, all being well, will be released in spring 2021. I'm hopeful that one day, once the film has been released, that we'll have the chance to bring Brian onto the podcast. But in the meantime, we've cut a few short sections from Emma's interviews with Brian into the conversation. Emma has also kindly written a list of books that work well as a starter kit for wrapping your head around Britain's natural landscape and its heritage, which we'll share on our Instagram account at The Adventure Podcast and in the show notes on theadventurepodcast.co.uk. Okay, we'll dive straight into the conversation with Emma Crome. I'm not, I, you know, in my head... I'm just like, I don't really get it, considering all of the people that you've already interviewed. I'm not George Monbiot, I'm not Aldo Kane, I'm not swinging through the, the jungle, you know, on ropes like Waldo Etherington. I'm, I'd love to be, but I've had my fair share of adventures, but not on the same scale. I'm not sure I want them on the same scale as some of the expeditions that I hear about or read about. I quite like the quirky little adventures where people say, you did what? <laughs> Why did you do that? Whereas when it's climbing a mountain or exploring the jungle, it's people can understand it. But when it's driving 200 miles to go and find a man that illegally hunts game in the UK I don't know I think that's probably a bit more a bit more random and but to me that's an adventure I read a book um I think I told you about a guy Thomas Furbank back in the 50s got a, an old fixer-upper down in Devon close to where my parents live and 
I read this book and it was incredible. Just a story about subsistence living. You know, this guy that found, fell in love with this property and did it up and lived off the land on the fringes of Dartmoor. Um, and I was so fascinated. And again, in this book, it wasn't mentioned where where this house was exactly. It just gave very sort of vague descriptions of the surrounding landscape and landmarks. And I got so obsessed that I went to find the house. I just wanted to see it for myself and to, you know, just be able to place it, I suppose. Because it's in a place where I grew up and used to go walking and it just fascinated me and there was a sketch in the front of the book like a map of the surrounding area and I used that and I compared it with an ordnance survey map um, and it eventually found it it took me a day of driving around the country lanes um, but I found it and I just kind of peered over the gate I was like oh, I'm sure this is it and then someone came out of the front door this lady and I thought, shall I? <laughs> it's like, yeah, why not? So I just went through the gate and walked up the drive and introduced myself and said, oh, I, I read this book by Thomas Furbank called Log Hut. And I was just, I'm pretty sure this is the place. I was just interested. And this lady just laughed and said, yep, yeah, you're in the right place. This is his house. And she invited me in and we had a cup of tea and she showed me around and she bought the property um, without knowing like the story of Thomas Fairbank and he'd written like three or four books um but she didn't know anything about it until she bought the property and then realized the historical connection and then she'd become as fascinated with his life and the book and she like collected them all and had loads of limited edition copies of the book and so we just had this chat and she showed me around the whole the whole of the grounds and the house and it just I don't know it felt like being a little part of history or proper just research but not for any other reason than my own curiosity I suppose and that's what adventure is to me I think our own curiosity is a pretty good reason to have an adventure yeah I suppose so it's maybe the only reason isn't it yeah but so I do that kind of random stuff all the time yeah if you don't if you don't reach out to people, if you don't ask, if you don't explore these opportunities, then you just never know what you're missing out on. I suppose it's a bit like in 1999, I wrote a letter to Richard Curtis <laughs> um, about how much I love the Vicar of Dibley. And I don't quite know how it happened, but he wrote back and invited me to spend a day on the set. I wish I'd kept the letter that I'd written because <laughs> obviously whatever I said was obviously very complimentary and nice and I got to go and uh, with my family and we spent a whole day on the set watching the filming and it was just a pretty magical day, you know, once in a lifetime sort of opportunity. It was a bit, a bit jammy. Like my family always say, oh, you're such a jammy get all these things you do, but it's only because I've put myself forward for the opportunity I suppose I'd kind of speak to the right people and ask the right questions and yeah I was about to ask if you've always been curious but I suppose you answered that with your Richard Curtis story so I guess you know it leads us really nicely into 
when did you first hear about Brian Tovey and why did he kind of pique your interest? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm trying to think how best to place the start or where to place the start of a very long story. Well, you can tell us the story of Albion. Yeah, so I suppose in, to put things in context, I grew up in South Devon, um, close to Dartmoor, and I had quite a sort of outdoor upbringing. I mean, I lived in you know, classic suburbia, um, but was always a bit of a tomboy. My best friend, Sam, he lived on the edge of Dartmoor. And in our school holidays, we used to run a bit feral on the moors. Um, I used to go and stay with him. And we would build dens in the woods. We would climb trees. We'd make ridiculous tree swings. Um, we would nick his old brother's tree surgery ropes. And we would go and set up abseils off the top of Haytor rocks. Before I even knew what rock climbing was. Um, using an old figure of eight plate and we'd just go and you know, rig a rope and abseil off the off the back of Hator. And we used to we used to sneak out of his house in the middle of the night. So we'd wait till his parents and his brothers had gone to bed. Um we used to climb out of the window and then just sneak off up onto the moors and make a little campfire and just stay out for the night. Just, you know, getting up to all sorts of like mischief and and then we would get back at about five o'clock in the morning before everyone was getting up to to go to work and sneak back into the house and get into bed and like you know have a little snooze until you know mid-morning or whatever and no, no no one was any the wiser and those sorts of experiences were just you know that was my when I look back that was my childhood you know getting a bit sort of scruffy climbing trees building dens and um, we used to play <laughs> we used to play a game called olympic gardens and this involved plotting a little route through the neighboring houses in the little hamlet where sam lived and we would again this sort of waiting it till it got quite dark and we would sneak out of the house and we would challenge each other to kind of sneak through these little routes through people's back gardens linking up people's back gardens and private property so we'd run around we would get into someone's back garden and we'd have to would challenge each other to try and sneak past the kitchen window and you'd see someone inside doing the washing up or whatever and you'd have to like crawl underneath the window or you'd like run past the the french windows the patio doors at the back of the house basically just try to not get caught occasionally do the whole you know knock on the door and run away that kind of thing but we called it olympic gardens and it was like the same route <laughs> that just kind of got ever more challenging and it was all innocent fun you know and um, i think we probably still did it into like our early teens <laughs> when we suddenly realized that actually maybe we're a bit old to be doing it now and you know if someone did actually catch catch us in the uh in the back garden then it was uh yeah we'd probably get into more trouble than when we were kind of a lot younger um, but yeah, those sorts of experiences just shaped my outlook on life and adventure and I guess perhaps not wanting to conform to societal norms. Uh, and it was just it was just really good fun as well. Um, 
and then I kind of as I got older I got into climbing um, and and hiking and wild camping and I was very familiar obviously with Dartmoor spent all my holidays in Snowdonia or the Lake District and so I really kind of revered our countryside loved the outdoors I suppose looking back felt like I knew everything there is to know about you know our kind of rural areas and then I stumbled across um, a, a TED talk from George Monbiot which was called How Wolves Change Rivers and this explained how the reintroduction of wolves in Yellowstone National Park had ultimately transformed the landscape and by reintroducing wolves which was the missing apex predator to the ecosystem it changed the behavior of the deer in the park who started avoiding kind of open spaces therefore those open spaces started regenerating with um with plants and trees therefore that brought birds back and insects and just the knock on the cascade effect down the ecosystem meant that in the end because plants started growing it stabilised the ground, which meant the rivers started changing course. And it was just this whole, it's called a trophic cascade, fascinating. I'd never heard about it. And then this led me into the whole subject of rewilding. I watched that, that TED Talk, listened to the TED Talk, and that blew my mind. And then by chance, I stumbled across another talk that George had done on specifically on rewilding. And... It revealed to me the reality of our situation in the UK, which is that um, our countryside, our land is hugely impoverished. We're quite species poor through various reasons, intensive agriculture, um, you know, deforestation, um, you know, development actually, uh, yeah, we don't have a wilderness in the UK. You know, there is no wilderness left. And rewilding is actually like a positive way of trying to um, regenerate the land to what it once was. But, you know, I, I didn't really know all this. I just always revered our countryside and and loved wild camping, even though it's not wild. And so it just, it just totally altered my perspective. It was a revelation. You know, I'd never been interested in conservation or ecology or anything like that, you know, I'd and so I suppose rewilding captured my imagination and also shocked me into thinking, Christ, the UK is, is you know, an ecological disaster zone, for want of a better word. <laughs> um, and then I thought, well, why aren't more people talking about this? You know, why, why is there not more stuff in the news about, you know, how bad intensive agriculture is and you know why aren't more people discussing the environmental problems on our own doorstep as well as what's going on elsewhere in the world and that's when I came to the realization that I wanted to make a documentary film about this and that was four years ago and it's been quite a journey <laughs> I wanted to tell the well I want to tell the human story around our perception of wilderness in the UK in 21st century Britain and I want to try and like reach outside of the echo chamber. And I also want to tell the human stories of, you know, our rural history and how we've impacted the land. 
think there are lots of people out there who are doing a very good job of creating wonderful wildlife documentaries, but there's kind of less around the human stories. Um, and this would also help to kind of create empathy and interest from a, you know, a wider audience potentially. So my research into making this documentary involved trying to find different characters um, to, to kind of represent the ideas and themes. And along the way, I've met and interviewed people like George Monbiot, Peter Taylor, who's a scientist, he's a conservationist and a shaman, um, Waldo Etherington, who you've had on the podcast, who's a, a professional tree climber, um, and, and various other people, all with differing interests in the, in the environment and conservation in the UK. And then, I suppose three or four years ago, I read a book called The Last English Poachers, which is about a father and son based down in the southwest. And they essentially live a subsistence life, live off the land by taking game, like deer and rabbits and pheasants, from private estates and farmland that surround their village. Everything I, I get, I eat. And I'm nature, your nature, we're all nature. I like to hunt for food, same as a fox hunts for food. And the story struck a chord with me. I'd never really, I never really knew anything about poaching, apart from what you hear, obviously things that are happening in, you know, Africa and India, what people imagine when you talk about poaching is, you know, rhino horns being cut off and, you know, endangered species. And so to, to kind of learn more about the history of poaching in the UK was was fascinating. And I guess one end of the spectrum, reading this book made me feel like these guys were potentially in, almost indigenous people, like the last of the indigenous people living off the land in the UK, you know, whether you agree with it or not. And then the other end of the spectrum is that they are just, you know, common criminals causing trouble and yeah you know carrying out illegal activity um and I just thought well these guys would be amazing to go and an interview um why so they live off the land essentially um and the way that they live off the land you know, it's not like any kind of farming or or conservation or, you know, like having an allotment. They are, their knowledge of the land and wildlife, you know, what, what they don't know about wildlife isn't worth knowing. Um, so putting aside the sort of illegal element of their activity, they hunt animals for food, yes, but... To do that, they understand the animal's behaviour, they know how to track the animals, they know how to do it in a sustainable way, and they also love it. You know, it's just their whole life, their life is rooted in the countryside, and their life is rooted in, in one place, in one area. You know, they, they've lived there, the, you know, the families lived there for generations, and they know every inch of the, of the lands the surrounding woodland, the rivers, the fields, they just know it all. And so that kind of depth of connection, to me, just is quite unusual. You know, you don't really get that in 21st century Britain. Lots of people will go out for a walk 
with their dog in the park or visit a, a national park or a particular beauty spot, but their time there is limited. And then they go home to, you know, go to work, uh, whatever their distractions are. You know, it's it's they're not living and breathing it like these guys are. It's changed. People aren't in supermarkets now, don't they? People do their shopping online and they go to towns now where it's a quarter of the price. Most people here now wouldn't know what poaching is. In the context of Britain and Brian's story, what is poaching? In the context of Britain, poaching actually comes from the 11th century and the reign of William the Conqueror. He introduced something called forest law to Britain, which was outside of the existing common law at the time. And it essentially reserved hunting rights for the aristocracy on huge areas of land in Britain. So that therefore meant that it actually became illegal for commoners to go onto the land and take game like rabbits, deer, even fish. And therefore poaching was born out of commoners, you know, the poorer communities and individuals trespassing on these bits of private land to take food for themselves and to feed their families. So in a way, poaching was, I suppose, born out of necessity. You know, people who needed food and sustenance and lived on the fringes of these areas of land which had become, you know, a privileged area of hunting for the aristocracy. The you know, commoners would go onto the land and take game for themselves. And, you know, poaching actually comes from the word poaching comes from the Middle English word pocken, meaning to bag or bag up. Um, and, you know, that's what they used to do. They'd go, go onto the land in, you know, under cover of darkness and take some game and chuck it in, the, in a bag and leg it back to the village and the house and, you know, so no one could catch them. Um, yeah, and, you know, it was punishable by death, you know, till relatively recently actually you know into the 1800s I suppose poaching was um a, it's it's a crime and you'd get into a lot of trouble if you were caught taking game from estates that were belonged to lords and dukes and earls and now well I suppose it's almost been like poaching's been compounded throughout the the centuries by the way that systems have kind of chipped away at our access to land so things like the Highland Clearances and the Enclosures Acts and even the Industrial Revolution where people move away from rural areas to, to go and work in the cities and towns. You know, all of that's kind of compounded our disconnect to, to the land. And, you know, these days poaching seems, you know, it's very archaic, something that's kind of consigned to the history books. Um, but actually, you know, all, all Brian is really doing is what his ancestors did which he wants to go and take a bit of food off the land to feed himself and to make a bit of money everything i i get i eat and i'm nature your nature we're all nature i like to hunt for food same as a fox hunts for food so yeah i i wanted to go and 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 speak to them i i did a lot of uh sleuthing to try and find out you know um where they lived and i contacted the author of the book 
I, you know, I emailed him, I emailed the publisher, I even rang them and left a voicemail to try and get the contact details for these guys. And I just heard nothing back. I waited for sort of a, a couple of months, sent a couple more emails, and it was just radio silence. And so I was getting a bit impatient, wanted to kind of crack on with the, with the interview and the filming. Time was getting on, so I, yeah, in the end, I decided that I would try and pinpoint the village where where they lived because it wasn't actually mentioned in the book the actual name of the place um, so again did the whole trying to reference um, or cross-reference all the different landmarks to try and narrow down the most likely place where they lived and through a bit of reading actually discovered that the father had passed away about uh, four years ago um, but the son was still alive so it was worth pursuing so yeah I'd, I'd was fairly confident that I'd pinpointed the village and I got into the van, packed up the van and I drove 200 miles or whatever it was to go and knock on doors and track down the poacher. <laughs> and I guess I was a bit nervous. It was, I don't know, maybe it seems like a bit of a crazy thing to try and go and find a man who and to ask him to be a part of a film which could compromise his way of life, you know, and and I might not have had that warmer reception. I just didn't know what to expect, I suppose, but I just felt it was just so worth trying. <laughs> um, and again, that whole curiosity, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what the outcome would be. And again, that's, to me, that's like a proper adventure. You know, you just... You don't know who you're going to meet and you don't know what's going to unfold. And that to me is so exciting. It's just the best feeling. And being t entirely sort of independent, you know, no one to answer to. You just come up with an idea and you see it through. And so I drove down. I rocked up in this village on on the high street. It was a pretty dilapidated old old village. Actually now sort of a rat run through to, to the main motorway nearby and it was about six o'clock in the evening and I pulled up on the high street and the first thing I saw was a social club and I thought well that seems like a sensible place to start um I was also a bit thirsty <laughs> so I went into this social club and um got a beer and I got chatting to a couple of ladies who were sat at the bar and explained to them who I was looking for and, and straight away they knew who I was talking about but one of the ladies said oh you know I've, I've not really seen him around these parts for a, a long time and um, in fact her brother went to school with him and um, but she was like I've, I've just not seen him around here so I was a bit dejected my god I've just driven four hours or whatever it was and this isn't a good start but we got chatting and then like more locals came in and I was kind of surrounded by this little <laughs> village mob who were all really kind of curious as to what I was up to. Um, and one of them actually said to me, you know, be careful because there, you know, could potentially be an unsavory character and just, you know, mind how you go sort of thing. And that kind of made me feel even more nervous. Um, and I was about to kind of move on when all of a sudden the landlady kind of beckoned me over and she was like, hey, guess what? Like Pat over there, 
she knows the guy, he's his next door, <laughs> he's a next door neighbour. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and Pat comes over and uh, he's like super enthusiastic and she's like, oh yeah. She's like, I've, I've lived next to him for 40 years. I'll take you to see him now. And so this was like quite a sudden change of fortune. It was all quite abrupt and, but I just went with it. I was like, right, okay, well, I've come this far. I may as well, I may as well go along with this. So I followed Pat out of the social club and down this little alleyway. And by now it was sort of, you know, it was dark. <laughs> all getting, feeling like it's getting a bit sinister, a bit random. And she led me down this little alleyway and just to this little road behind these terrace houses and through a gate, through a garden to the back door of this little brick house and tapped on the window. And yeah, I was a bit like a rabbit in the headlights, I suppose. He, uh, this guy came to, to the back door and opened it up and Pat introduced me to him and he invited me in and yeah, I was all of a sudden sat in this strange guy's house. Um, just, just, there was taxidermy on the walls. Um, I could this albino hair in a glass case that was like pride of place in this living room. Um, his his mum was, was sat in the corner, like 90 odd year old lady doing a knitting by the fire. Um, it was all quite sort of calm and it was almost, the house was, I suppose, felt a bit like stepping back in time, had a bit of a 70s vibe to it. You know, it was, it was very clearly a house that had a lot of history and had been lived in by the same family for years and years. That was like the first impression that I got. Um, and yeah, he's, he sat me down. Uh, he was in the middle of having his dinner <laughs> a little, on a little tray on his lap in the living room. Um, and we got talking and I told him that I'd read the book and I had um, been researching for this documentary film and I wanted to interview him. And he was pretty enthusiastic in a sort of, in a very calm way. I mean, he, I suppose, yeah, nonchalant is the word. He, he seemed curious, but also at the same time, just very accepting. Um, he didn't ask me too many questions, just just told me a lot about himself and about his family and his way of life and it was incredible and then he he agreed almost straight away to to the interview uh, and I explained you know that I'd come back with a little crew and we'd do some filming with him and he was he was really really keen and I was about to sort of wrap things up and head back to the social club where Pat had made me abandon my pint at the bar <laughs> and <laughs> And uh, he asked what I was doing for the evening and I sort of said, well, I'm, I'm just in, in my van, just going to kip here overnight and I'm going to go home again in the in the morning. And he was like, oh, we can go out poaching if you like. I'll take you out, take you out tonight. I was like, oh, all right, okay. <laughs> this sounds, sounds interesting. <laughs> and I guess I'd secretly been hoping that he would ask me to do that. <laughs> um, so yeah, he went off, got me a pair of wellies and... Uh, came back and he like got properly camoed up um big like camo jacket and like a woolly hat on and like totally looked the part and yeah off we went out into the night through the little housing estate and out into the fields and 
we spent must have been four or five hours walking through the woods and the dells and through the little streams and he had this old folding diamond bore shotgun with him and um, we were just on the cusp of it um like the hunting season being over so he had to be sort of very careful about you know what he was doing and um because he actually believe it or not you know he abides by those seasonal rules of you know once it gets into kind of nesting season and breeding season hunting season stops he stops you know poaching season for him is obviously hunting season so yeah we were kind of right on the cusp of that and he showed me around all of his haunts essentially where you know places I'd read about in the book and places that his father and his grandfather had you know poached throughout the decades um it was quite primal in a way like wandering through the night it was quite cold clear night not that much foliage on the trees it was you know the the sort of end of end of winter and it was like following a, a ghost around the fields almost um just a very yeah very old primal feeling that it gave me um out there doing something that we weren't supposed to be doing looking for roosting birds in the trees he was explaining to me you know how you poach and why you do it and what it means to him yeah it was it was quite otherworldly i suppose and it also made me realize that he's the only one doing this like there was no one else out in that area of land we must have covered about six or seven miles that night and we didn't come across another soul even when we were walking along the bridleways and and footpaths there was no one and looking back at the lights of the village made me realize how much we have this kind of we all live in this little bubble now like a kind of comfort bubble where we've got you know our warm houses centrally heated all of the street lights and everything you know which are very protective very defensive but being out there with him looking back into the village where everyone's either asleep or you know sat watching tv with their takeaway or whatever it made me realize like how far removed we are from nature if you look at this village 99.9 .9 of people are brought up in what I call a plastic life. Uh, um, centrally, it houses brand new clothes, trainers, um, molly coddled, and their food source would be <laughs> uh, burgers, chicken nuggets, um, supermarkets, all that. They're brought up like that in a plastic life of work, money, debt that circle work 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 kids go to school uh, young age and are brainwashed to continue continue up up to go into work and uh, no sort of life not here not not country life now so they would look upon someone as killing a bird a rabbit a deer uh, for food as unusual and as cruel his way of doing things is is controversial you know the He's taking 
game off private land. But he's he's doing that to, to make a living. He's doing it to sort of feed himself. And back in the day when he could sell the game, it was to, to make some money. So I don't see that there was anything so wrong with that necessarily. It's almost impossible for people to make a living off the land now unless you're, you know, a farmer. And even then you're kind of heavily relying on subsidies a lot of the time. But, you know, here's just a man who clearly loved what he, he was doing. He liked the fact that it's a bit anti-establishment and, you know, he's not supposed to. It's like two fingers up to the establishment. But also he was very knowledgeable and caring about you know, the animals that he was catching. And so, yeah, we kind of came to the end of our little tour of the woodland and we were walking back towards the village and we stopped at a, this little copse. Um, right on the edge of the lane and it was in this little kind of dark dip not too far from some houses it must have been about 1am at this point and he said oh there's some there's like always loads of birds that roost in the trees up here and I was looking around and I couldn't really see anything <laughs> didn't have my contacts in or glasses on and it was pitch black and, and he just had this little flashlight and and the gun and he was like, oh, you wait here, I'm going to go in there and see if I can you know, get get a pheasant. Um, and he gave me, he, so he carries this old post bag, which he uses to, to put pheasants and rabbits in. And it's, he must have had it in the family, I think he said for about 40 odd years. He got it off of um, the old postman that used to do the rounds in the village. He gave it to his dad and then his dad gave it to him. You can fit about 16 odd pheasants in it, I think. Um, yeah so he gave me this tattered old bag and he was like you hold that I'm going to go and try and get a bird if I get it just pick it up and chuck it in the bag and then you know we'll leg it back to the village <laughs> so I was just stood in the middle of this lane <laughs> with this bag and he went off and I don't know how he managed it it was just he's like proper sharp shooter because <laughs> he just had this little flashlight and he just shone it up in the tops of the trees which must have been about, I don't know, 15 metres, maybe 20 metres high. And, yeah, shone the light up in the tree and he just took a bird out with one shot. Um, it, like, dropped from the tree, landed in, like, the bushes a little way from me. And he was like, quick, like, grab it. It was fluttering around, obviously, all its nerve endings still going. I ran over and, like, just grabbed hold of it. It was pretty grim, like chucked it in the bag and then we both you know legged it back along <laughs> back along the lane back to the village like a couple of outlaws <laughs> it was yeah I properly got the adrenaline going and of course like because the gunshot was quite loud as well so you you know you can't really hang around he was saying like whenever he shoots a bird like that he'll always you know he'll head off in different directions each time he does it you know so that there's less chance of him getting caught not that I think I don't really think that there's anyone that will bother chasing him these days. From a very early age, you come in contact with the establishment, which is set up round lords, dukes, earls, around that section of society. More so years ago, when they had a big shout in the villages. So from a very early age, four or five years old, you come in contact with the police. <laughs> and landowners... Uh, angry farmers. It's great fun in having the most. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's so many different routes we could go down now. Um, But I think it's maybe important to talk about, you know, do you not worry or can you explain why you don't maybe? about exposing him you know in terms of criminal activity things like that well there's quite a reasonable explanation for that which is there's already a book about him and his family and that goes into detail about his past and the sort of criminal activity which doesn't it's not just about poaching you know there's other stuff that he's got up to which you know, it, I don't want to romanticise it. I suppose that's the key thing. It's not that I need to worry about exposing him because people already know what he does. It's more a case of not romanticising it beyond what's sensible. So I think that there is a certain romance around it because of the way that he lives off the land and his understanding of nature in the in the UK and from a quite unique perspective as well. It kind of, pro- like provokes a lot of questions around you know land ownership and access to land um but yeah then at the same time there's it's not that i want to endorse you know illegal behavior or illegal activities if we were all running around the woods at night with shotguns then you know that's that can't happen it, i mean it wouldn't happen in the uk and what are the key points that you think matter you know in the context of this Albion project and in the context of British um, environmentalism and wilderness why is Brian's story relevant good question Brian's story is relevant because we don't really as a society I don't think that we understand exactly what's going on on our own doorstep when it comes to the environment the natural environment so we look at our national parks and our countryside as you know our green and pleasant land and the reality of it is actually very different every single inch of the UK has been cultivated and managed for centuries for the benefit of humans and you know that's not going to change but our connection to the land and living off the land and therefore valuing healthy ecosystems and valuing nature what you know wildlife ecology that all is disappearing, I think, because of the fact that we look at a, a heavily degraded landscape and we consider it to be beautiful and, you know, wild nature, and it's not. 
Brian Brian's story is relevant because like I said before he lives and breathes the countryside he lives off the land he could be entirely self-sufficient if he wanted to be he understands how to go out and track animals and hunt them for food and as well as prepare them for food and he knows how to work the land he has an, you know, an allotment he can grow his vegetables and he has wood-fired central heating he doesn't pay for logs from you know he'll go out into the woods himself and you know take wood to yeah to fire his central heating in the house in the hot water and I think that his story paints a picture about how far removed we are really from nature and we all watch a lot of wildlife documentaries we as a nation you know we donate a lot of money to environmental charities and environmental movements you know things like deforestation or protecting endangered species overseas but we don't really pay much attention to what's happened on our own doorstep and I'm not sure that we're that fussed about it either as a you know as a society it's kind of this is going to sound quite bleak but we have a choice about what kind of world we live in in the future whether we realize it or not so you know climate change i think is inevitable and it's not a case of whether humans survive or you know we're going to we we have the technology we are clever enough that we will you know, survive whatever climate change throws at us. You know, how many of us and, you know, is, is another another question, but, you know, humans will keep going, the world will keep on spinning. The actual issue, I think, is what will survive with us. And I think it won't be a lot. You know, that we've chipped away so much at wildlife and, you know, natural habitats that, if there are huge temperature shifts in the future that, you know, certain species are what remains of our wildlife won't be able to migrate because we're in their way. Um, therefore, they'll perish and we'll survive. And it will be like the ultimate age of the human. <laughs> but that's a choice, right? That doesn't have to happen if we value and understand what's going on like right now and we make choices to regenerate our land and protect not well, not just protect what's left but also restore and regenerate and that's where rewilding comes in you know regenerating the land recognizing that the land that Brian is recognizing the land that the poacher is living off is also impoverished and degraded and he can, you know, his understanding can help to, you know, make a positive change, have like a positive impact on how we look after that land in the future. Because 
we can either end up living in a world which is very industrial, mechanical, you know, the focus is on consumption and profit and progress, where, you know, biotech and AI kind of reign supreme, or we could choose to live in a world which has a plethora of different species, is green and vibrant and has healthy ecosystems, clean water, clean air, you know, and is full of life and variety. And that, you know, that, that is a choice that we have. And I suppose by looking at stories around our kind of rural history and heritage and, and nature right on our doorstep, hopefully help to provoke questions around these kind of bigger themes because it's something that's ultimately relatable to the people you know who live in the quintessential rural communities of the UK it's probably a very long-winded way of answering the question no it's great I think that you know the more of these conversations I have in whichever context and capacity with whoever the more it becomes blindingly obvious that the issue actually is blinkers and you know everybody's walking around with their blinkers on hmm. and people like Brian offer an opportunity for us to look at a world that we don't know and don't understand even if it's only 200 metres away from our front door yeah. um, you know to what extent do you think that Brian represents the death of like authentic rural community and like connectedness to nature uh, yeah I, I think he I think he entirely encompasses how we've almost been driven off the land without realising it. So the author, Mark Cocker, in his book, Our Place, which is incredible, if you haven't read it, I recommend it, um, about the sort of history of conservation in, in the UK. He describes us as a nation of landless people. So there's so many reasons but you know right from things like the highland clearances and you know the industrial revolution you know the privatization of land all of this kind of chipping away um our countryside and our access to it has kind of led us to the point where we now are mostly like an urban society I'm, i'm talking you know like specifically about the uk most of us live in towns cities and we essentially all have very small gardens or a backyard. Like we, there's not that many of us that own huge swathes of land. They're the kind of preserve for the wealthy, uh, you know, either, you know, farmers, people working the land for profit, whether it's like, you know, the church, the Ministry of Defence or um, farming or big shooting estates. You know, we have the highest concentration of land ownership anywhere in the world second only to brazil i think if you take scotland on its own that has the highest concentration of private land ownership anywhere in the world and to that end it means that most of us are entirely removed from it and the only way that you can really live in rural communities is either if you're you know a farmer or you earn a lot of money and can afford to live in a nice property, you know, private housing in a nice little pretty village. And, you know, it's very hard to make a living off the land, which is the point that our poacher friend makes in the film. Um, 
that lots of people move out of these rural communities because a there's no jobs and b it's you know it's it's hard to make a living off the land and so over centuries we've been more and more removed from living off the land we don't really get where our food comes from whether or not you agree with eating meat you know but that it's most of the meat that we do eat is shrink wrapped and you know it's mass produced and you know packaged up and you go into the supermarket and you pick it up off the well-lit shelf with all of its pretty packaging and you just you have no understanding of just how that got there and again that's another reason why we you know we just that's another loss of connection to the land and when you look at Brian he's he's still he still has that kind of raw raw connection he doesn't need the infrastructure that modern society has built up around him to survive he can you know it might be a fairly grim existence by today's standards but he can get by just fine on his own without too much input from the system that's what i was going to say i think like you know i don't want to get bogged down too much in the weeds of the the detailed ethical dilemma of all of this but um there's no way we can go back to living you know nobody wants to live well not everybody wants to live in the way that brian does because we've been exposed to sky tv alton towers and international travel and whether you go to i you know ibiza or verbier on your holiday we want to go on holiday right Mm -hmm. so when you look at the film project that you've been developing for four years you look at all of those people all of their opinions Paul Lister and rewilding in Scotland, James Rebanks and the loss of cultural heritage and sheep farming in the UK. What is, in your opinion, the solution to the problem? What is the finale of the film, the last two minutes? It's <laughs> a big question. The finale of the film for me is that rewilding is not a controversial topic rewilding is a positive solution to climate change and protecting nature for the benefit of all of us not just for an abstraction of wildlife or wilderness but for humans as well we are absolutely reliant on clean water clean air you know, a healthy ecology to for our survival. And rewilding isn't the answer, or part of the answer to mitigating climate change and to ensuring our survival as a species. I mean, the, you know, it seems to me to be fairly common sense when you kind of look at it all. Obviously, I've done like a lot of reading <laughs> and listening over the course of four years but like I said we have a choice and if we choose to restore and regenerate the UK in terms of nature then ultimately I think it will make for 
a much healthier, happier future for everybody. You know, you look at things like nature deficit disorder, which is essentially people who don't have access to natural spaces, who can't just head out for a walk, you know, even just in a park or in the woodland, you know, there's higher levels of anxiety and stress in people who never have that kind of interaction or, or almost like physical space to breathe and switch off and, you know, have some perspective, whether that's through yeah, tree climbing or just riding your bike through the woods. And, you know, that's an absolute necessity for physical health and mental health. And if we keep on the trajectory that we're going on now, which is, you know, chipping away at our last traces of, you know, old growth woodland in the UK and, you know, the development of things like HS2, like the chipping away of our green belts through housing development, all of this stuff, you know, we're, we're going to end up in quite a sort of sorry state of affairs. Um, there'll be no balance. It will be a kind of sad monoculture of, you know, farmlands and... urban environments and that's the issue with shifting baseline syndrome which is you know what you introduced me two years ago and how i used to look at the lake district and i moved there when i was 16 years old from my urban environment and i i still think it's beautiful for but for different reasons than i used to and now i through you and the reason that i've done since a better understanding of what it used to be yeah and maybe what it could be again um but we we just think that it's the way it's always been because that's how we know it, and it'll be worse for you know the next generation and the generation after until you know we look at elephants and giraffes in the way that we look at dinosaurs yeah i I don't think that that's such a out there statement. I think that we're we're headed that way now, and uh, you know I interviewed Peter Taylor, um who was almost like the grandfather of rewilding in the UK you know forget Monbiot Peter Taylor was there at (laughs) there at the dawn of time he almost is a dinosaur (laughs) (laughs) but he opened my eyes to the fact that you know we will survive we'll carry on like humans as a species um but there'll be very little that that survives with us unless we embrace things like rewilding and so, you know, I'm always keen, I think it's worth saying that, you know, you and I have these conversations all the time. Yeah. And over the years, we've learned that we have to put a positive spin on them, otherwise we'll go insane. Yeah. So to put a positive spin on it. Yeah. What, where do people start with their own journey into understanding, rewilding or, um, positive progress towards you know changing the spaces that they live or changing the UK or changing other parts of the world I think it would be quite nice I'm sure you won't mind writing it up like you know five books to start with some short films to watch things like that that we can put in podcast show notes but if you were to recommend one book to start down the path what would it be it's hard isn't it because I think Okay, so there's a few, because I think obviously it depends on your age and and the audience. So 
the first book that I'd recommend, this is probably for people who are already kind of bought into the idea, is called The Abstract Wild by Jack Turner. And it's a series of essays. He's an American author. Um, he's a, you know, a mountain guide based in the States. He did a lot of traveling in the sort of 60s and 70s and he's a practicing Buddhist and he's written this series of essays which talks about what we've lost in terms of the wild and why it matters and he talks quite a lot about how we've turned how our perception of things like recreation and zoos and all of these kind of attractions are it's not wilderness essentially we've turned the world into this sort of like theme park but he his writing is so beautiful and poignant that it's i think one of the the testimonials on the book it's you know it's like a cry in the dark um and it kind of everything sort of unravels when you read it you know you can read each of the chapters as a standalone you know they're all kind of standalone stories but they're all sort of saying that that's a bit bleak I suppose it's not particularly positive positive outlook but I think that's important because it does kind of shock you into the realization that we have to make some kind of positive change otherwise you know the thought of just living with just humans and domestic dogs and cats for the rest of time is is quite a, a sad world to be <laughs> living in and his you know his description of um traveling you know in some fairly remote areas in the states and in the himalayas in the sort of 60s and 70s um is quite wonderful to read as well you know exploring all of those in-between places that no one had ever really been to before and you know his experiences there with the communities and wildlife it's yeah it's stunning um the lost words is a book by robert mcfarlane also illustrated uh, by jackie morris and he touts it as a spell book for kids and the whole premise of this book is the fact that nature words are being removed from the junior dictionary and replaced with um, words around technology. So, for example, things like acorn and otter and willow, would you believe, have been sort of taken out of the junior dictionary and replaced with things like hashtag and selfie and that whole thing just kind of encapsulates the journey that we're on at the moment you know what how we kind of prioritize things um and the things that we're essentially forgetting um and you know so this book is aimed for at kids to kind of tell the story of these nature words that are being lost and what they were what they're kind of referring to so it's helping children to you know identify different animals and different plants and just in a really beautiful poetic and visually engaging way and you know there's lots of people who already know about this book because it's you know it's stunning and there's been a lot in the press around how 
just almost I'm fairly incredulous that you know a lot of children you know they they don't know what an acorn is or they don't know they can't identify an otter or a heron you know that's yeah I mean that kind of thing is I don't know just there's an urgency around sorting this shit out (laughs) well yeah I think there is and that and I I force myself which I don't find very difficult anymore into a positive headspace with it and you know we always have a choice with stuff like this where we can either wallow and whinge or we can act Mm -hmm. and I think you know there's actually it's a super easy call to arms to say if you have children teach them what a willow is teach them what an acorn is you know every positive action like that is a counter to a negative action is a is a counter to you know um kids and their mental health issues because of snapchat etc and so we can all make little positive changes yeah and it's the the cheesy cliche of um you know a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step mm-hmm. and it's kind of that simple yeah yeah it's you know taking your kids out to a beach clean um you know just taking getting your kids out the weekend you know into the countryside and just i think it's really important to allow kids to just kind of play and mess around outside like I did with my mate growing up just not trying necessarily to force information or or learning let them go out and explore and figure things out for themselves and you know appreciate what they're surrounded by you know and there's so many amazing initiatives now dotted around the UK so our friends Kane and Heather who run Wild Intrigue based up in Northumberland you know that's an environmental initiative which is aimed at you know educating young people about nature like residentials as well taking them over to like the the western isles of Scotland to um do nature studies and they do um bat bat watching evenings with um you know where they'll have like wood-fired pizza and they get everyone around to you know with with the kids to um do the back counting and there's just loads of different amazing ways to get involved with you know these sorts of initiatives and that you know they're fairly accessible you know you only have to do a little google search on your local area to find little forestry schools or um you know volunteering that you can go and do uh, you know, it's it's hard isn't it you know you have to you have to want to go and do it. You know, you have to make it a priority over watching a, a football match on a Saturday afternoon. Or, <laughs> But I think that's why it's important to tell these stories and make these films and, and do it in a way that is accessible to mainstream society. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, people outside of the echo chamber it's kind of capturing the imagination isn't it and doing it in a way that people can sort of like empathize and and understand yeah and we're talking about this you know as the lockdown restrictions are easing in the middle of the covid crisis and it's a mixed bag because the, the you know the negative is that people are leaving rubbish at the little door etc that's education you mm-hmm. know that's fixable but 
I, I take huge positives out of the fact that everybody wants to go outside. You know, Dirtle Door's absolutely rammed. We both live in the Peak District and we can't get out at the weekends anymore. You know, <laughs> that's a positive. People want to be in the natural world. We just need to, as a society, learn how to do that better. Yeah, I think so. And it's, it's pressure on these areas. You know, people, because we've lost so much of these kind of wild green spaces, people who are living in these urban environments have to travel so far to get to somewhere where they can enjoy you know the fresh air and it's unusual for them it's not something that they that they do you know every weekend or every other day and so I think part of rewilding the positive of it is not just about regenerating small areas we're talking about like huge areas of lands that can be restored and regenerated and creating beauty spots which are closer to the the towns and the cities you know making more of the green belt so that people can access them a lot more easily you know jump on a train and just you know be half an hour away from being able to go out and have a picnic and a barbecue in a safe and responsible way somewhere beautiful without having you know everybody kind of this mass exodus from an inner city area to you know a beach or a national park so if we can create more green spaces throughout the UK it kind of hopefully would potentially ease the pressure on the beauty spots you know like those honeypot areas whether that's you know Snowdon or or the Hope Valley in the Peak District or or Glencoe you know if we can get out and enjoy the countryside on our own doorstep a lot more then you know that would hopefully a it would make mean that people are kind of doing that more regularly and therefore you know, more understanding of how to look after these places. Yeah, and B, it would take the the pressure off of the honeypots and allow them a bit of, you know, space to be regenerated and looked after and, you know, not so kind of intensively trammeled upon. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, final thing I'll say from that is part of that is enjoying elements of our cultural heritage and looking at, you know, it can be fun to walk down the canal side, you know, on a towpath. We talked just before we pressed record about Edgelands in the UK and how we both really like them as areas, you know, these post-industrial landscapes or the bits of wilderness in heavily inverted commas between towns, between cities, between villages. There's lots of them and there's lots to explore. Yeah. I mean, we have such a rich tapestry of cultural heritage and sort of rural history, you know, that all kind of sits alongside each other and it's you know it's it's fascinating I think especially as a young person to be able to go and explore all these like tumble down buildings along a canal or you know in the farmland there's an old barn to go and you know um go and explore or um here in the Peak District we've got all of the little like caves and old bits of mines and stuff that just I don't know it's a bit you know a bit of history it's kind of exciting and it helps to feed that curiosity so the cultural heritage side of things and, you know, the farming and it all has a part to play. There's no there's no getting away from that. You know, it's as much a part of the British landscape as the woodland and the rivers and the natural elements. You know, it's, it has been for, you know, millennia. But there's a way of it all kind of coexisting in, in balance, I think. So um, the more that people get out and understand the differences between what a natural landscape looks like and what 
you know a managed landscape looks like and then I think the more people are engaging that the better and it's not saying that you know farming is bad like you know intensive farming is bad but farming that you know is balanced with with nature and done in a in a you know environmentally sensitive and sustainable way you know is good and that's what we should be kind of aiming towards yeah and it does exist it just doesn't exist everywhere no that's it and you know slate quarries can be and are beautiful yeah maybe what we need to be thinking about is taking down the 10 foot fences because some of us not you or I obviously but are climbing over them anyway (laughs) yeah exactly yeah I think letting again kids young people just go out and play outdoors I think I feel like you know that should be compulsory (laughs) you know yeah our our education is um you know it's so systemic and so blinkered we only learn certain things in certain ways and it's you know it I feel like it teaches us what to think not how to think and if we had a bit more of an approach like around environmental education of how to think rather than you know this is bad this is good then it would serve us you know humans all species a lot better if we can make up our own minds about things come to our own conclusions because that's what that's what happened to me you know through almost by accident in a way but just through one little like film that I watched and then a book that I read and all of a sudden everything that I thought I knew about the UK countryside just unraveled and actually the reality was very different but I'd never no one had ever told me that no and it's about creating momentum I mean again just look at what Extinction Rebellion doing look at the Black Lives Matter movement which you know gained traction in the last two weeks it's about creating a movement which is obviously driven by people masses of people and I think once you start educating once one starts educating people and you realize that most of the land that you um are walking through and running through is used to breed grouse so that rich people can shoot them you start to want to tear that infrastructure down Mm -hmm. metaphorically yeah so yeah positivity vive la revolution i've had some fairly you know fairly intense arguments with friends about all this sort of stuff you know and it's i think it's just i think a, a lot of people's connection to nature and wildlife is quite emotional you know it comes from things that they've it's like a belief almost they might not live and breathe it every day like the poacher does you know they're not they're not working the land they're not getting their hands dirty they haven't got soil under their fingertips and you know out in the elements every day but for some reason this you know, the green and pleasant land of the UK is like an institution and it's like almost like this religious thing that you cannot say anything bad about it and, you know, it's ours and it's beautiful and quintessential England is just like the best thing since sliced bread and so to try and change that perspective to say, actually it's not, it could be better, you know, 
we need to love it more we need to do more for it to help it like regenerate because actually it's degraded and those moorlands that you love so much like on your run or your bike ride are actually like an intensive grouse moor that have just you know eradicated most other species that could exist there you know that's a big thing to for someone to you know to to process and so yeah I've, I've had a fair few heated debates with with friends um by keep at it well bring it on let's have the debates i think that's the point right as long as they're calm and they're civil and both parties are willing to listen yeah. which is something that we don't have a lot of left in modern society yeah you know that's what we need let's talk about it yeah. let's talk about dry stone walls let's talk about sheep farming that doesn't mean we can't change our minds no absolutely yeah it's you know it's i was talking to a friend of ours who's you know an exec producer down in london about you know trying to get funding for this documentary film and you know, his point was like, well, you know, it's it's not sexy. It's not, you know, where's the conflict? Where's the peril? You know, people aren't going to watch it or pay attention if there isn't, you know, this kind of almost sensationalised um, story or like a hook that's that's going to be controversial. And and I guess that's the sad reality is that it's, you know, it shouldn't be controversial. It's there should be balance. There should be, you know, integrity and... <laughs> You know that yeah potentially that doesn't sell doesn't sell newspapers doesn't necessarily sell films you know but doesn't mean that it's not important yeah <laughs> and it's not it's definitely you know it's definitely the way forward i think it will once the sea levels rise and we run out of places to hang out yeah once we close off turtle door once we you know get rid of the sheep farming because it doesn't work anymore yeah fascinating isn't it i i would love to so i basically come from the outdoor community that's sort of my identity if you like where all you know i spend most of my time hanging out with climbers runners you know cyclists people who are into kind of outdoor recreation and i would love to know what the consensus would be so take for example stanage edge which is like it's basically where all rock climbers in the UK like they'll all make a pilgrimage to to Stanage to go climbing it's sort of like the epicenter of climbing in England um if we decided that we were going to close access to Stanage for 10 years because it's like hugely eroded all of the nesting birds that you know can potentially nest there and do nest there are under threat you know they're the ring oozles which nest there now aren't coming back because there's too many people there's too much litter you know the ground's eroded they want we're going to shut it for 10 years to allow it to regenerate to take the pressure off it to allow other species that use that area to thrive and exist without disturbance what would the climbing community or the outdoor community say about that would we say okay you know what yeah, 10 years, that's fine. Let's preserve it for future generations and for species other than humans. You know, would we sacrifice that for the sake of future generations and for the sake of other species? Or would we say, no, I want to go climbing. This is like, absolutely, it's my God-given right to be able to go up to Stanage and 
tie on and go and like climb some routes that's you know that's my priority that's I would love to but it's interesting you know I'm a rock climber who lives you know if we look out this window and there wasn't a building in the way we could see Stanage mm -hmm. I live a mile and a half ish from Stanage Edge I would say yeah sure let's shut it down for 10 years as long as I can still go and climb everywhere else but what about the erosion that's going to be caused to millstone instead because everyone goes there mm. yeah, that's the issue yeah and it's like you know let's not get into this now but it's like Allerdale wilderness estate in Scotland you're not allowed to go and walk around in it it's privately owned mm. and a really interesting conversation for a different day is you know is the way forward benevolent dictatorship of land ownership mm -hmm. you know that let's say you know near enough near as damn it the whole of Scotland is privately owned by rich lairds and landowners mm -hmm. if 90% of them decided to rewild, that would be a good thing, right? Yeah. It's still land ownership, but it fits our agenda. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, like, access, I suppose, is another subject altogether in terms of no matter what you're doing to that land, maybe with the exception of, you know, like food production, and, you know, you, we should be able to access it. If you're regenerating something like you know tree planting whatever you can access it in certain ways but you know potentially entrusting people to stick to footpaths and you know rather than being able to like run off off piste and wherever you like I suppose the thing is it's trying to get people to sacrifice their own yeah and sacrifice their own just sort of things that they love doing for the sake of other species and other generations future generations it's it's such a complex subject yeah i think like we'll kind of leave it there and i i've said this already but my last point i think if people were to go and watch how wolves change rivers by george monbiot you know tell me we shouldn't be doing that in the UK. You know, I'm up for the debate, but yeah. tell me we shouldn't. Because that is 10 minutes of Monbiot at its best, you know, explaining exactly why wolves do change rivers and why we should have large predators in Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. And why we, why we don't have them anymore. Because they used to be here. It wasn't that long ago that, in the broad scheme of things, and the reason that they're not here anymore... It's because of us. We could put them back if we really wanted to. It's just a choice. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall podcast is also produced in association with Sidetrack Magazine, an outstanding publication that features incredible stories of adventure. You can find more at sidetrack.com. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do tell your friends and also please take 10 seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. They make the world of difference to us. Thanks very much and see you next time.